Good afternoon, all. My name is Jade Floyd, Vice President of Communications at the Case Foundation and the Case Impact Network. It is my pleasure today to kick off this session with Travian Shorters, one of the world's leading social entrepreneurs and a catalyst of the national movement to define Black people by their aspirations and contributions, then permit them to live, own, vote, and excel in America like any free people. He's a retired tech entrepreneur, a New York Times bestselling author, and former Vice President of the Knight Foundation. Travian's an international authority on the award-winning cognitive framework called Asset Framing for Equity, which is in demand by heads of influential philanthropic journalism and social networks. Asset Framing is a game changer for foundations and nonprofits, and he'll talk more about that today. His work has been committed by leading institutions like the Packard Foundation, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and the Heinz Endowments. Today's conversation is a deep dive encore into Travian's keynote last year that many of you may have heard in Austin. He'll be weaving in all that we've seen happening around the country and the globe. And he'll challenge each of you to consider how we as communication professionals are unconsciously, but fundamentally undermining our commitment to equity. So let's jump in. A reminder to please ask questions via the chat box at the bottom of your screen. We're going to weave in several of those later on in the conversation. Travian's going to give us a TED-style talk for the next couple of minutes, and then we'll jump into the Q&A. I welcome Travian Chorters. Awesome. Thank you, Jade. Super excited to be able to share this uh, content with you all today. Um, throughout this talk, probably the most important question for all of us to think about and just sort of have at the front and back of our minds is try to come up with the answer to who do you think we are, right? Whether you're talking about America, whether you're talking about Black people, you need to have a clear answer to that question. I'm gonna challenge you uh, in what you might think that answer is. So we right now have an unprecedented opportunity to fundamentally change the way that equity work is conducted in the United States. And I'll explain uh, why in just a moment. And we can make it far more integral and far more impactful than anything that was done in the previous century. Those of you who are familiar with asset framing know that it is a simple, but powerful cognitive skill. And I think that's the best way to think about it. Asset framing is a skill. It requires you to define people by their aspirations and contributions before noting their challenges. And any of us who think that we're doing equity work, if we're trying to do that work, but we don't have, we don't have the skill to asset frame people, we don't know how to introduce these topics or these issues in a way that doesn't avoid the problem, but also doesn't define people by the problem, right? That's, that, that is what asset framing is all about. It's about knowing how to answer the question, who do you think I am? Who do you think other people are? Being able to answer that question in a way that does not define us by our worst potential, does not define us by our weakest condition or our most regrettable moment, right? Asset framing is honest, and it really is the only way that I see that we can have a contiguous approach to systems change. And again, I'll go a little bit deeper on that in a moment. Um, in a way, another way to think about this is if you live in philanthropy or the social impact world, I used to be at you know the Knight Foundation as vice president of communities. And in that world, we should wake up to the fact that we have spent over the last 50 years trillions, like when you add it up, we spent trillions on our wars on poverty and our wars on crime and our wars on drugs and our wars on illiteracy, like you name it. Uh, we spent, you know, a crap ton of money. Uh, and when you look at the, the very populations that we say we care the most about, the very populations that might self-mobilize around this stuff, whether it's Black folks or uh, folks in the LGBTQIA community or 
folks who are you know impoverished. Like when you look at when those groups organize, they don't even count us as allies. They're not writing us in as their allies. And so how wrong do you have to get it to spend that much money on an issue, call yourself an ally, but those who have lived the experience know better, right? People know when they're being denigrated and they know by whom. And so uh, again, for those of you who may not have experienced the asset framing training, let me at least underscore uh, a few key points. Number one, the training is based on uh, research by cognitive scientists and some of whom are Nobel laureates. Like these are folks who really know what they're talking about. And they explain how cognition actually works. How do people actually make decisions? Because it's not the way that we're told that we make decisions, the way that we believe we make decisions. And the moral of you know, that study and, and, and that part of the training is narrative actually matters more than facts, clearly. Because our minds are always forming mental narratives, right? That is how we make our decisions. We don't make our decisions based on facts. We make our decisions based on perception. And you kind of know this subconsciously or intuitively, but I'm, I'm saying it's really important that those of us who are in the narrative business, you're in the communications business, you need to credit how powerful your role is in every decision that anyone makes. And if you're, you know, folks who are maybe higher on your organizational totem pole aren't recognizing how important the um, narrative part of your work is, I'm imploring you and I'm going to try to give you ammo to get them to see it differently because narrative literally matters more than facts. We are hardwired to create narratives and to make our decisions based on the narratives that are happening between our ears. That's one. Second thing that the training emphasizes is stigma narratives uh, prime you to write whoever the stigmatized group is into the public conscious as a threat on a basic, fundamental, literally primal level. When you use fear-based stigmatizing narratives, you, you're, 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 we are mentally hardwired to respond to those things that are stigmatized in a way that wants us to first avoid them. If we cannot avoid them, then we have to control them. If we can neither avoid nor control them, we get the impulse to kill them. And this is hardwired. It's true whether you're talking about spiders or rats or roaches, like anything stigmatized, including inner city youth, right? Like anything stigmatized, you are hardwired to want to avoid it. This is on a cognitive, subconscious level. It has nothing to do with whether or not you believe yourself to be prejudiced or any of those kinds of things. It is how we are wired. Stigmatized things are associated with threat. So if that's the case, the fact that we start off in philanthropy and social impact work by stigmatizing people, right? That is the first thing we do. Then we set a cognitive trap in motion, right? Um, I mentioned that the impulse is to avoid control kill. Well, think about NIMBY issues. What is a NIMBY issue except you want to avoid having those people anywhere near you, right? Think about all these nonprofit programs that seek to prevent or control the threat or risk of uh, inner city youth, of poverty, of crime, like all, you know, it's all about controlling. And think about how many times you've heard someone in one of these deplorable videos uh, about, a, you know, an officer gunning someone down or something like that. You've heard them say that they actually fear for, them, for their lives in a circumstance where there was nothing that was life-threatening from the other person, right? Again, in those situations, they could not avoid the stigmatized creature. They could not control the stigmatized creature. So they reacted with lethal force to kill. The so this is the science, and it's important that we understand that we are hardwired to respond to things that are stigmatized as if they are imminent threat. And as framing maybe the third 
point of the training. Does it define, define them by being the only fundamentally integral way to approach equity, right? Because equity, in essence, is always about about value. Like whether you're talking about equity in the financial markets or you're talking about equity in social impact space, you're always talking about value. That's what it's that's what that's what it is about at its essence. So to define people in ways that devalues them from the jump categorically undermines the quest for equity. Categorically, if you want to believe that people should make greater investments in people, use investment language. Talk about their worth. Talk about their assets. Talk about their aspirations. Talk about their contributions, right? Talk about their strengths. And by the way, we never say ignore any of the negative stuff. Don't ignore it, but don't define people by it, right? It is possible for you to have relationships with people where you're not denigrating them at every out, at every uh, encounter, right? And we encourage and really sincerely recognize why it's important for us to do that in the work that we do. Um, the other thing about, for, again, for folks who maybe aren't as familiar, um, asset framing might sound like a nice, nice thing. It's far more than that. It, it is not about what you say about people. It's about what you think about people. Who do you think we are? That's the question that I'm, I, you know, I, I find myself going back to time and time again. A friend of mine, uh, Jim Shelton, who used to be uh, the COO of the U.S. Department of Education, uh, he said that asset framing is like realizing that you've been walking up the down escalator your whole life. Like the way you've been approaching this thing uh, is the hardest way to approach it. And when you go at it this other way, you realize all these opportunities that you may not have seen before. So my charge to us as communications professionals, to us as social impact leaders is um, we have to accept that if there is a narrative of hatred in the United States, and by the way, I'm on the board of the Solutions Journalism Network, and what I'm about to say to you, I've said to the, you know, to the head of that, that journalism network, but if there is a narrative of hatred in the United States, then we in the communications field are co-authors of America's narrative of hatred. And we are co-conspirators in the cover-up because this constant referencing to my, I'm black, so let me talk about my people. This constant reference to black people where to say something good about black people as a whole has to come with some caveat or some condition. But when you say something negative about black people, it's a full sentence, full stop, people are done. So this, our, our tendency to want to define a certain population always by their threat, always by their challenge, always by their problem, always by their pathology, our pattern of beating that rhythm into people is what makes folks willing to accept the idea that certain people are just inferior, certain people are always struggling, certain people always fail. And we, can't, we conveniently leave out the side of the narrative, which by the way is backed by data, it says that African-Americans actually uh, show up among the most patriotic, the most enterprising, the most generous, the most engaged people in the country. Like we lead, you know, evidence-based, because y'all like that stuff. Um, but that's a narrative about Black Americans that we don't, for some reason, know or share. And when all you do is beat up on someone's negative aspects, then you are priming their mind, you're priming the public mind to fear them, right? And so if there is a narrative of hatred in this country, we have some culpability. Now, I recognize that our mistake was done innocently, meaning we didn't set out to denigrate. Like that, that, you know, that's not the objective. We, we, we inherited a way of engagement that says, let's first strike fear 
and then get a response, right? When people are fear, you know, afraid of poverty, afraid of crime, afraid of, afraid of injustice, whatever it is, like we can make. So I get that we bought into that way of engaging people. But I also want you to consider that if you take your vehicle and you're driving down the highway at 50 miles an hour and you see me crossing the street and you turn and bear down on me and run me over at your vehicle because you hate me, that's evil and that's wrong. But if you're driving your vehicle 50 miles an hour, and you're just not paying attention to how I show up in the world and you run me over just the same, my experience of you is no different. So for you to tell me that you didn't mean to do it, okay, got it. But if I'm run over, I'm run over. And we don't have to run people over. In fact, when you think about it, we, as I mentioned at the top, we can change how social impact uh, work works by having a fundamentally different approach to people than our opposition does. Our opposition loves to denigrate people on purpose. Right? That's what they do, and they do. But why are we that. defining they people in and run you down the same on purpose, right? But why are we defining people um, in the same know, way? Uh, liberal, conservative, moderate. Independent, everybody can recite narratives about black denigration, black failure, the like. But when it comes to the assets, very few of us can tell that side of the story. And I think if you're about liberating people, if you're about justice, if you're about freedom, then you have to have a language of liberation and justice and freedom. And that begins with valuing all members of the human family, having that be a practice and a habit. And as I'm nearing, like, I thought I'd only take 10 minutes, but as I'm nearing 15, let me um, try to close. Um, probably the thing that is painfully at the front of my mind is we're approaching an election that um, will probably be one that sets the course for a generation, honestly. And we're a little late to the game in terms of realizing that it's not a matter of tweaking here or tweaking there, right? We are at a point where if we don't fundamentally, like I'm talking about us, the good guys, if we don't fundamentally switch, if we don't embrace this idea that we have to define people by their aspirations and contributions, like have a different approach to humanity, if we don't come to that conclusion and stick to it soon, then we will lean into the left hook that the opposition has, right? They're able to invalidate us and able to invalidate democracy because our message and their message only sound a little bit different, right? We don't disagree about the deplorable conditions. We don't disagree about the deplorable people. We just disagree about what to do about those, you know, underserved, poor, impoverished, et cetera, you know, so on and so forth. And as Rashad Robinson says at The Color of Change, which I, I really love, um, we talk about certain conditions as though they are unfortunate when in fact they are unjust, right? People made decisions that put people in conditions of poverty, put people in conditions of injustice. And those of us who are in this space now have to make a decision about whether we will continue to denigrate and stigmatize people and use fear motives uh, as we've done in the past, or whether we'll recognize that that has been a mistake and we have to speak life into populations. We have to define people by their aspirations and contributions, develop a much more inspiring and accurate and fundamentally different narrative about humanity and engage people accordingly. So uh, I know what side of history I want to be on. I implore you know, everyone here to consider uh, the same question. Who do you think we are? And I'm happy to 
jump into anything topical, Jade. Uh, Absolutely. Thank you so much, Travian. That was so powerful. And I wrote down so much. I felt like I was going to church. Um, so let's unpack some of the things that you were discussing. Um, but before we do, I want to rewind a bit. I want to go back in time um, and talk to the viewers a little bit about your origins. You hail from Pontiac, Michigan. Looking back on that time, what was kind of that critical moment in your life that really set you on this trajectory to where you are today and to the success that you've seen across your career? Yeah, um, Pontiac is a place that is like Detroit, um, except that it was more violent in the days that Detroit was considered the murder capital of the world and it was much smaller, so nobody cared, right? Nobody paid attention to what was happening in the yak, as we call it. Uh, and so, uh, I feel very much like many of the folks that I know uh, who grew up in Pontiac, that I've survived some of the worst that America has to offer. Um, and I've lived the contradiction that, you know, that there is to live in the land of the free that was the home of the slave. Like, I understand how America can be two competing things at all times. And I think uh, the way that shaped the way I look at this work is I know folks who've, you know, done crimes, done times, committed you know, serious infractions. And I know their humanity. I know how much they love. I know that they have the same aspirations as the rest of us. And if anything, uh, the guys who end up being sort of the most criminally inclined, it's because they know that their aspirations can never be realized and they just decide to do something else. So again, this 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 switch, this decision to define people by their aspirations, um, it's fundamental. Mm-hmm. So can you talk to us a little bit about the Be Me community? Tell us what Be Me is, because um, a lot of us may not be familiar. Um, you know, I was really blown away when I did my research on the organization about its impact. You have almost 400 fellows across the globe. Two million have been served through your work. So tell us a little bit more about Be Me, and then I want to jump into some of the stories from your fellows. Yeah. Um, so started Be Me when I was vice president of the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. So it began as a project at night, um, and it spun out, uh, you know, under its own power. And the way to recognize Be Me now is. Uh, we are a black leadership community, right? Uh, and at the core, the main thing that we do is we speak life. Mm-hmm. Bimi believes, and actually the fellows, the, you know, the vanguard that we call them, the leaders in our network, they literally believe in speaking life in the situations. They're the ones that show up when no one else shows up. They're the ones who are there in the darkest hour, not looking for credit, right? They're the ones that the communities have come to trust. And that's a fundamental for us. Like the two characteristics we look for in our vanguard is have you committed your life to making a difference? And have you earned the trust of your community? And the folks who meet that mark get to be part of the clique. So these are some brilliant, powerful, genuinely inspiring human beings, genuinely humble human beings. And I love you know, being uh, kind of a ringleader or, or, or a space uh, maker uh, for such people. So mm-hmm. the, maybe the, the three things to understand about Be Me. Uh, one is a black leadership family. Two, we teach asset framing to the heads of you know, impact organizations. Uh, uh, And then three, uh, this year we created a campaign based on what these Black leaders said they would put into a Black agenda if it fell to them. Mm -hmm. And the campaign is called Live, Own, Vote, and Excel because those are the four aspirations that have defined so many Black movements. Even the movement for Black lives that's, you know, know, got the sort of forefront right now. Live, own, vote, and excel. And it just so happens that those four uh, recurring Black priorities spell out the word love, right? 
So supporting the movement for Black lives and the movement for Black ownership and the movement for Black voting and the movement for Black excellence is the way that you build Black love in this country. And it just so happens that all four of those values are just basic democratic freedoms, right? When you step back and think about it, Black folks aspire to live, own, vote, and excel in a democracy. And I'm hoping that there are other people in the democracy who can recognize those are worthy aspirations and just be down. So that's being yeah. So your previous work at the Knight Foundation, where you were responsible for over $300 million in grants and endowments, you worked on a big project. You surveyed Black men in U.S. cities um, from Detroit to Philadelphia to learn what they were doing um, for others in their communities. Yep. Did you find any unsung heroes in the work that you were doing? Oh. Um, and oh, what yeah. did you learn back then that really influenced what you're doing today? Oh, yeah. All, all unsung heroes. In fact, we didn't just survey. We interviewed. We interviewed 2,000 Black men. Uh, and part of the questioning was, you know, what do you do to give back to your community? If anything, every single one of them could describe what they, every single one, like all of them. And that's and so that reset our 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 understanding inside the foundation, because there's many of us that when we say things like um, you, you need to define people by their aspirations, you need to shift their lens. There's many of us who believe that that is a charitable act. Like we think we're being kind and generous, which is bullshit. You're not being kind. You're not being generous. You're recognizing the truth of people, right? And so when we, again, polled 2,000 different men who did not know each other, uh, interviewed, um, and they all could tell you what they do to give back, but that is not the narrative that is associated with Black men. We realized, again, we're on the wrong side of the question. And by the way, when we went to the pub, we went public, you know, in Philadelphia and um, Detroit, we, we let folks know that we had done this. And then we uh, offered those black men uh, to support their works if they could you know, tell us things they were working on. And the interesting thing when we went public with the narrative was we expected, because you talk about unsung heroes, we expected local people to be like, wow, I didn't know all this great stuff. Like, thanks for you know, giving us a new insight around black men. And instead, what we got back was, it's about time. Like, mm -hmm. I'm glad somebody's finally telling the story about my, my uncle, my cousin, my grandfather, you know, the brothers that I know. I'm glad that folks are finally trying to tell the truth about mm -hmm. black men. And I was like, okay, we're definitely leaning on our ladder up against the wrong wall. And no wonder when those same communities self-organize, they do not count us as their allies. So, um, yeah. So, Many of us sitting in front of our computers today um, work for leading institutions uh, across the globe who are trying to enact change. But you wrote in your piece in the Chronicle of Philanthropy last year that, and I'm going to read it, says, for the last 50 years, governments, nonprofits, and foundations have collaborated to wage the war on poverty, as well as the wars on drugs and crime, by making Black people the poster children for these menaces to society. And your work is really uprooted in destigmatizing. De so yeah. why is it that so many philanthropic institutions are still continuing down this path? And this is happening in our day-to-day -day workplaces, on our Zoom calls, yeah. around conference room tables that yeah. we've had in the past, especially in a COVID-19 environment yeah. when we're all apparently woke and our colleagues are woke. Yeah, uh, we all do it because it's easy. It's, it's the convention, right? Um, human beings, again, hardwired to respond to fear automatically. We all, you know, it doesn't take any thought to respond to something that, that scares you. So we're hardwired to respond to fear. People want to get attention. The easiest way to get their attention is to make people afraid. I get the convenience of it. The problem of it is, as I mentioned, when you constantly refer to people in ways that are fear triggers, 
then you stigmatize them and you're teaching society to be afraid of them, right? Um, it is only a little amusing to me that we call these things programs and that they are programming people, right? Um, I used to be a software engineer, so uh, I recognize that the way you code it is the way that it will flow. And right now, we inherited a habit of stigmatizing people to motivate. And the consequences of it, we've ignored. That's why I say we are co-conspirators in the cover-up. We're unwilling to acknowledge that we are culturally writing Black people in particular into the American narrative as a problem. When in reality, I, I wrote this in a different article, but I'm going to drop it here. In reality, Black people have always been assets to this country, literally arrived to these shores as assets on the books as assets. We have always been that thing. And in fact, Black people are so important, so valuable to America and always have been that even today, battles are waged every day to see who gets to own us. People are still fighting to see who gets to own Black people's narrative, who gets to own Black people's neighborhoods, who gets to own Black people's creativity, who gets to own Black people's aspirations. That is, that is still fundamentally important in the United States. That's how valuable we have always been. And this narrative that says, you know, these people are basically deficient, like that, that sort of stigmatizing narrative, its utility is when you rip off these aspiring, worthy people, you have a built-in cover story. It's not that you stole from them. It's that they uh, don't know how to handle money. It's mm -hmm. not that, uh, you know, you uh, damage their, their you know, uh, neighborhoods or family structure. It's that they have a culture of irresponsibility, a culture of poverty, right? Which, by the way, the data doesn't back, right? When Black women happen to be the fastest growing block of entrepreneurs in the United States, right? When Black men happen to be uh, the group that serves the country at the highest rates in the military, then you have a profile of people who are both dutiful and enterprising. So this idea that they have a culture of poverty comes from what? It, it, is, a, it is a retroactive um, articulation uh, of what has caused these things. And so maybe what I, uh, and as you can see, I started to preach again, but the- Preach, Travian, preach, but, but, I'm over but, here. Mm. But, but, but sincerely, the, the, the point that I'm trying to drive home is black people have literally always been assets to this country. And when the rules have been fair, we've done fine. Mm. We've been for ourselves. Black people are the number one employers of black people. They're the ones who are most likely to hire black people, right? So if they get access to capital, then maybe you'd have, you know, with all these black entrepreneurs and, and these women, if they get access to capital, maybe you could solve some of these other problems, right? It's, mm -hmm. not that, it's not that black folks are in any way incapable. In fact, and maybe I'll stop with this last data point. Um, few people realize that in the United States, there's no other ethnicity that has created more financial institutions than African-Americans besides the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, right? And, and think about segregation. We had to, right? There was a time where we had to. But the idea that we don't know how to handle money, we don't know how to handle it, I don't know where that narrative comes from. Because we've been able to create millionaires in a climate, I'm talking about back in Madam C.J. Walker days, we created first millionaires black, back- First woman millionaire. Right. Turn of the we created millionaires in, a, in an environment that was openly hostile to our right to even breathe. So we can do what we can do as uh, I forget who said it, but it is true that it takes billions of dollars to keep us poor. Mm-hmm. Mm, Travian, when are you going to write a book? Next year. All right, because we're all sitting over here just eagerly waiting for this book to come out. Um, so you actually, you're a best-selling writer, and just a few years ago, you did work on a book. 
Yeah. Um, reach 40, Black men speak on living, leading, and succeeding. I actually uh, just purchased multiple copies for the men in my life, my husband, my brothers, my father-in-law. Um, you wrote it in conjunction with Ben Jealous. And it was this collection of personal essays from Black men from all walks of life. You had John Legend, musician and entertainer. You had Reverend Al Sharpton. You had NBA um, star and coach Isaiah Thomas. Alongside a number of investors, businessmen, community organizers, and philanthropists. So, you know, there's obviously so much power in truth telling and unearthing your own story. So can you talk to us a little bit more about that book and the lessons that you learned or maybe one of the stories that really moved you? Yeah, I, I won't pull out a single story only because uh, there's, there's so many. So, and I think, I, think the, I think the moral of the book and the moral of this work is uh, there's millions of unsung heroes, right? Um, and it's not it's not that we have to like highlight a specific hero is that we have to um, start recognizing the hero in each of us. Right. Um, and that's real. Like I'm not that's not just flowery language. Like it, It's the truth. Um, and so what I loved about Reach, however, the book is it is a series of six or seven page autobiographies. Like we interviewed each of these brothers and, and let them tell basically their own story. And then we recounted the story back. And the utility of it is if you're unfamiliar with black people or black men, then here's a very easy way to get some pretty like under the hood, very personal stuff, because, you know, Ben Jealous is friends with uh, a lot of very influential people. I'm friends with a lot of other people. And we were basically interviewing our friends, which they opened up. And, mm -hmm. you know, John mm -hmm. Legend talks about what it meant for his grandmother to die and how it affected um, the rest of their family. Right. Um, Dwayne Edwards, who started Pencil, talked about what it meant to be a designer or have, have that, that skill, but to be shut out by the footwear industry until he made them recognize his ability and then created a pathway for so many other footwear designers. The, the point is um, experiences that you might think uh, are uncommon or you might not associate with uh, black folks, uh, Reach gives you a way of experiencing them uh, from a safe distance. Mm -hmm. uh, and then having a different narrative, a whole bunch of different narratives available to you about what it is to be a black man in America. Well, I encourage all of our viewers to purchase the book. Um, you know, I, I wanna remind everybody to ask questions via the chat box. I have a couple of more before we jump into some of those questions. Travian, you know, we've, we're living in unprecedented times. Yeah. Um, we've had a really emotional, traumatic week with the passing of RBG, with um, Breonna Taylor news that came out just shortly before the session started. Yeah. This is a never before moment for most of us. One we'll never be able to go back from. We will all be forever changed. So what in your mind does the future of America look like? And how can we prepare for it as communications professionals? And what's our responsibility to that future? Yeah, thanks for that. Because I want to re reinforce that those of us who tell narrative, like us, we communications professionals, we have an outsized influence on perception. Like we have more to do with the decisions that people are making or not making than data does, right? Than evidence does. It's, it's not about the evidence of the day. It's about the story you tell. Literally, the stories we tell create the lives that we'll live, right? And right now, we've painted ourselves into a condition that allows certain people to invalidate uh, news itself, right? <laughs> to, to invalidate uh, who is actually on the side of justice and who is not? Like we've gotten too we, we've gotten too used to denigrating. We, we've made such a habit 
of denigrating people that the opposition really does picks up what we says and sort of amplifies it even more, right? So for people who are just trying to survive in this country, if you're like, if you're a black person in this country, it doesn't feel like liberals and conservatives view you any differently. Mm-hmm. It just feels like they have a different answer, right? For what to do about you, right? They both tell stories about your poverty and your crime and your you know, ways that you fail. Like that, that, these are standard fare in both camps. It's just one camp says you're in this condition because, uh, I don't know, uh, you're a bad person. And another camp says you're in this condition because you're an inferior person or, you, or, you, or you've been made inferior. Neither one is my narrative. Neither one speaks the truth about me, in my opinion. Neither one is something I would tell my son, you know, or my daughters. Uh, so, so when we look forward, like when you talk about the, the opportunity that we're in, the thing that scares the shit out of me. I was trying to think of a nice way to say it, but I want to be accurate. <laughs> and so the thing that scares the shit out of me is right now, so we've trained obviously in the United States on asset framing, and we've also trained in India on asset framing. The U.S., the most prosperous democracy in the world, India, the largest democracy in the world. Right now, both countries are headed by men who do not appear to actually believe in democracy. They don't actually value democracy. And when you have the leaders of the biggest and the most powerful democracies in the world, not particularly caring about the concept of democracy, then we can tip in a direction that that we might not ever be able to come back from, right? Ideas that are actually fascist can just seem practical, Mm. right? Ideas that are truly, genuinely destructive to our moral fiber as a nation can just seem forgivable, right? Mm. Incidental. And we are definitely, we're, we're clearly at that, that tipping point. And the other thing that's, you know, adds sort of fuel to that fire for me is we right now are in the last generation of white majority in America, another never before thing, right? The last generation you know, where white folks would be the majority. And in a democracy, that would normally push us towards pluralism, right? That would normally put that mean, you know, since, since there won't be any racial majority, then we'll be more inclined for pluralistic ideas. The problem is in this country, we've allowed um, what is essentially white supremacy in different forms. We've allowed the notion that white folks must be the center of every discussion, every thought, every action, right? We've allowed that to become so normative that when white folks stop being centered because now we have a plurality, they will have an impulse or a reflex to try to recenter themselves. And so this idea mm-hmm. that um, having greater diversity automatically leads to greater plurality, not true. Uh, I, I'm holding my tongue, but I think I'm just gonna say it. Um, in apartheid South Africa, uh, white folk were the minority, but they did not <laughs> lead to a more just society. Uh, innately. Uh, mm-hmm. In our history, most plantations have more Black folks on them than they have white folks on them. So the fact that you are the majority has not been uh, the proof that there will be any justice. Mm-hmm. Justice takes a decision to recognize the value that we all bring. And that's why we push for asset framing. We, 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 we have to rescript ourselves for the society that we want to have. Mm-hmm. So well, let's talk about those you know, minorities. Uh, and the majorities, what does equity look like for those in the seat of power? And this is kind of my last question for you before I jump into the audience Q&A, because I want to make sure I give some time to folks who are beaming in. 
Sure, sure. And um, in this conversation, I've I've juxtaposed black and white, which I really very rarely do. I'm not. That, that, I don't. I don't think of it. I don't. Really, I, I legitimately don't think of it um, in that dichotomy. Um, but when you think, when you say those who are in power, um, what I think about when it comes to equity is <laughs> America as a nation. It has reached a point where we will underachieve and underperform simply because we're not bothering to tap into all the value and potential that all of our people bring, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, the, the, the game has been set up a certain way where uh, we value certain people, think of certain people as more essential, more important, more capable, and that's fine. Traditionally, they have been white, male, wealthy, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. To, you know, and, and that group, might do okay, but when you look at the nation as a whole, right now, if you were to get the black kids and the white kids to be reading and doing math at the same level, then they would all be 31st in the world together. If you were to get you know, black health outcomes and white health outcomes to be equal, then they would be 35th in the world together, mm. right? We've reached a point where the, our ways of thinking about this stuff are not adequate to the time. Mm. We're not in a position where we can fix things fast enough to ever get them right. We're in a time where we have to build new ways of, a, of approaching these issues. Mm-hmm. And one of the cornerstones that I, I sincerely want people to consider, a cornerstone for the world that we're trying to create is to base it on our aspirations, our shared aspirations, rather than our challenges and setbacks and all that kind of stuff. And again, don't ignore those challenges, but define people by their aspirations before getting into their challenges. Mm. And then you have a way of engaging all of us in building something new. Otherwise, I think we fix ourselves into a decline. So Robert Bradford, one of our viewers asked, what are some daily reminders that we as communicator should take with us as we move forward so that we don't fall into all of our old habits and our old ways of thinking? Yeah, um, well, number a couple things, and this is a little bit of a, of a self plug, but be me, uh, we, we train in asset framing and we're also creating a, a tutorial platform, a, a learning community so that you can be around people who are also asset framing. When you talk about habit change, one of the biggest um, uh, inputs on consistent habit change is to be around people who support your habit, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever tried to you know, quit eating chocolate chips or, or smoking or any of those kinds of things, but all your friends are still doing that stuff. Doesn't work that way. So uh, the biggest thing I would encourage folks to do is connect up with other folks who are interested in this other way of, of tackling um, Mm -hmm. aspirations. Okay. Uh, Stephanie Crispin asks, as black communicators, what's our responsibility to our institutions? Yeah. So here's the crazy thing. I've I've been, I've been a uh, high ranking Negro, right? I've, I've been in these positions where, uh, it's your job to wear the badge of the brand and you do it with honor even though the brand is dealing with issues that are racially charged and steered at your population, but doesn't want to frame it that way. Doesn't, you know, mm-hmm. they, they want, to, want to talk about poverty in general and put your kid's face on it instead of talking about the fact that black folks have been made impoverished. Right. So I know what it's like to be in this weird space where you have to roll the rock uphill and there's lots of resistance to all the ideas that you're putting forward. And then when they're successful, the brand takes credit and they don't always credit you as being the one who, um, and so what I would say to you is, I know you, I feel you, and here's the thing. Uh, we're trying to create some cover for you. Like we're, we're helping institutions to understand that they have to switch their way of thinking about folks. 
And I would really invite you again to tap into the BME community, mm-hmm. use the resources that we make available to folks like you, right? Pick up, you know, uh, practice asset framing yourself. Uh, and I guess that's, yeah, I'll start. Yeah, you know, I'd also encourage uh, you to join the circle community, the Black Communicator Circle community um, at Comnet that was just launched this year. So we have four minutes left. And I wrote down so much that I learned and I want to recap some of that for the audience and pull out some of the key things that really resonated with me from your remarks. You know, first is asset framing. Um, does that really we need to not frame us by our worst moments um, and frame the individuals that we're trying to serve. And that two people really know when they're being denigrated and they know by whom is doing that. Um, narrative matters more than facts. That, I think I'm going to print that out. I'm going to put it on my screen because I want to think about that in my work each day um, as we're trying to form these narratives and these storytelling moments in our communities. Um, I also learned, you know, using investment language that we need to talk about black and brown people's worth. We need to talk about their assets. We need to talk about their strengths. That, that resonated with me. And um, we have to define people by their aspirations and we have to speak life into these populations. Um, and you know, w- one thing that sat heavy on my heart that you shared was that, you know, black people have always been assets, but unfortunately they've also been a commodity. Uh, mm. So that's something that we all should just think about, you know, historically. Um, whether we're black, white, brown, um, we really need to keep this top of mind for us. And there are millions and millions of unsung heroes, unsung stories, and we need to recognize those. We need to uplift those. We need to be using those in our institutions. And we as communicators have that responsibility to do so. So that's what I learned. Um, I cannot wait to see all those chapters in your book on those key things. Uh, and so, you know, in our last kind of two minutes, any closing remarks for us and things that we need to take with us into this world? Yeah, sure. Um, this was obviously a very short time to talk about um, a whole range of really important mm-hmm. things. Again, I started the, the, the talk with the question, who do you think we are? If you don't remember anything else from this talk, Remember that answering that question in a way that affirms our worth, black, white, other, doesn't matter, like across humanity, starting with a definition of people that recognizes their aspirations, that recognizes their contributions. And then you can talk about every problem under the sun that they've ever encountered. In fact, that's what BME does. Uh, I mentioned that we have a fellowship. I'd say maybe 15 or so, 20% of those 400 fellows have done serious crimes, right? Have been convicted of major uh, crimes. And we don't hide any of that. We just don't define them by that. Mm-hmm. Because since the times that they were incarcerated, they've grown up and done other things, right? And believe in other things and move people in a way that only folks who've come from those backgrounds can. And the reason why I'm emphasizing that specific story is because we say to Black men and women that you should be defined by your aspirations and contributions, right? And they're willing to buy into that. And once they are willing to buy into that, then we say, okay, but what about this country? Right? What about America? Should America be defined by its aspirations and its contributions the same way that you want to be defined by your aspirations, your contributions? And yeah, what about all this terrible shit that's happened in the past and it's still going on? Yes, all that stuff is wrong. And let's not ignore it the same way we don't ignore your story. Mm-hmm. If we're going to come together as a nation, we have to define ourselves and this nation by its aspirations and its contribution, speak life into that, and then live according to that narrative. That is our only option. 
The other option, as I mentioned before, is to run around and live a, a life that is schizophrenic and yes. unjust, right? Mm -hmm. Where you can be a Hillary Clinton supporter, but also do that stuff that Amy Cooper did in the park, right? Like mm -hmm. people, we, America, um, America is an idea that has been copied hundreds of times in the world, right? Mm -hmm. our, our, our constitution is the blueprint for literally a couple of hundred different governments. Mm -hmm. And the way that we go will be copied. So we have a, I'm talking about those of us who are the good guys. We have a genuine global historical responsibility to learn how to speak life into people or speak life about people and to define us all by our aspirations and contributions. I honestly believe it's our only way forward. Well, thank you, Travian. That was incredible. Um, and I really appreciate the time you took with us today. Thank you.